I think as a discipline, we try to capture that perfect moment. For me, I'm interested in what happens when we're not there. From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City, conversations on how we live where we live. I'm Charles Waldheim. We're here with Chris Reed, a landscape architect whose work focuses on dynamic ecologies in public space. Chris joins me today to discuss his concept of work life. Welcome. Great to be here. Let's begin by just explaining what do you mean by this concept of uh, work life and, and how do you develop it through your research and practice? Work life is an idea that was initiated really reflecting on the various ways in which I've been working over the last couple decades, really, um, as a teacher, as somebody who does research, and as somebody uh, very much involved in practice. In, in very simple terms, I'm interested in the life of work uh, and the life or afterlives of the urban landscapes that typically we're involved in, uh, in some ways. The idea was initiated in part because of an interest in how we think about the design work that we do, no matter what uh, scale we're working at. I'm quite interested not only in how we set up strategies, how we set up physical forms, how we design a space, for instance, um, but I'm equally interested in the afterlife, what happens in cities and in public spaces once we as designers leave. How is it that our work catalyzes social activity, social engagement uh, in many ways that, that really goes beyond the work that we've done? It's certainly set up by that work, but it's something that ha- begins to have a life of its own. I would say, you know, there's a, an immediate interest in the social, but you can begin to think about that too uh, from an environmental or ecological standpoint. How is it that the physical uh, constructions might inaugurate or tap into or amplify environmental dynamics uh, that are already in play. And so the idea that urban spaces, cities have lives and afterlives that, that are prompted certainly by the way in which we as designers and planners think and work, uh, but that these things go on and begin to have a life of their own, I think is really at the germ of that idea. You mentioned your practice, um, Stoss Landscape Urbanism, you've been engaged with for now two decades. Tell us something about the work you've been doing through practice, what kinds of projects, at what scale, and which kinds of urban environments. Sure. We typically are working in pretty tough urban environments. So uh, we're a landscape architecture practice, wholly committed to urban environments. My own uh, entry point to landscape uh, was through studying 19th century American cities. It was not through um, garden design and a love of plants, although I do love plants. It was really looking at the work of Frederick Law Olmsted, his parks and park systems, the ways in which they really shaped and reshaped emerging, developing um, uh, cities in the 19th century. These landscapes that Olmsted was designing uh, functioned in many different ways. Of course, they were open spaces and offered a reprieve uh, at that time from the industrial city. They served recreational functions. They became habitat 
Oftentimes they integrated flood control. Oftentimes they set up new transit and mobility systems with parkways, urban parkways, and even public transit systems like here in Boston. So there were these multifunctional entities that really reshaped the nature of the city. They were definitely landscape projects, but I would say they were projects of the urban projects of the city. That's my starting point. That's my entry point to landscape. And so, so many of the projects that we engage are urban. They're at the heart of cities. They're really tough. Oftentimes, they're leftover spaces, um, sometimes industrial spaces that have been contaminated in often many different ways. They're subject to social forces and economic forces that are really competing sometimes. Um, so we're operating in a very sometimes contentious but vibrant, let's say, urban milieu. And the scale of the work can vary anything from a small public plaza, a quarter acre in size on the waterfront in Milwaukee, all the way up to a 500-acre urban redevelopment, reimagining strategies for the centers of cities like uh, Dallas and Boston and some cities around the world. Uh, so it's really quite a varied practice, really focused on the urban and the social and the way in which we can begin to re-inaugurate environmental, ecological, and social dynamics in those spaces. Would you say that um, your work is in some ways returning to that 19th century origin of landscape architecture practice in which the landscape architect is responsible for synthesizing, reconciling through these design projects, a range of economic, infrastructural, and social tensions? Absolutely. In fact, the teams in which we now have to work are really quite diverse and dynamic and multidisciplinary and can, can range from having artists and public health experts to any number of engineers to economic analysts and, and, and so forth. But ultimately, we're the ones that are synthesizing that work, uh, bringing it together in ways that any one of those disciplines can imagine, but, but something about the way in which we're trained and the way in which we are engaging multiple infrastructural, social, and urban systems of many kinds through the work, I think, allows us to be that synthesizer. While it, it may be a cliche to think of landscape as a, um, a medium that deals with time, with your formulation of work life, are you suggesting that designers have not often enough returned to the lives and afterlives, uh, the use, the, the social lives of their projects? In, in some ways, yeah. I mean, I think we are all very interested in that moment where, when the project opens and we want the photographer on site and we want to capture that moment. With landscape architects, it often comes a couple years later once a lot of the plant material is grown in. But in some ways, I think as a discipline, we try to capture that perfect moment and work with photographers uh, who, who are practiced and trained uh, to do so. This project is different. For me, the photographs are great. I'm interested in what happens when we're not there or what, what happens when our architectural photographer isn't trying to set up the perfect view with perfect lighting. What is it that takes place in these spaces beyond our control, right? We think heavily about the activities, the way a space might be programmed, the relationships, the physical relationships we're setting up. 
uh, but to have the opportunity then to come back to live and relive to see what's happening in that space uh, of its own accord is the thing that that is of most interest to that end we've engaged a photographer mike bellamy from Asheville, north carolina whose work really is is more um, centered on photojournalism and portraiture he's never done an architectural project never worked with architects and what he does do is capture people and social life and the relationship between people and their environment in incredibly compelling ways. So as an example, he's documented life in an off-the-grid community in rural North Carolina where he himself lived uh, for a period of time in order to document that life. On the other hand, he's documented various urban cultures as well, um, whether it's skateboarders or Confederate culture in the South, he inserts himself, insinuates himself into the environment, really gets to understand the people non-judgmentally, and then uh, develops a way to begin to depict what is going on in that particular community, people's relationships to one another and people's relationships to their environment. And it's this aspect of his work that I was really interested in. So these Bellamy photographs are part of a a larger book project that you're working on. That's right. We're working with Mike and having him visit a number of the cities where we've been working over the last decade. Los Angeles, Galveston, Texas, St. Louis, uh, Milwaukee and Green Bay, Detroit, Ann Arbor, uh, Boston and Cambridge. Sometimes he's photographing the places we're working. Sometimes he's photographing life in the projects that we've built. And what he's capturing, I think, goes far beyond us in our work. It's really about the contemporary American city, the, the issues, the struggles, the tensions, the triumphs, the, the ways in which people are engaging with each other and enjoy each other. It's very real. It's about real life. But in some ways, his photographs are able to touch on the issues that ultimately we are dealing with as designers, as planners within the urban environment. What of climate, climate change, and what are the implications on people? What of changing and shifting economies, economies that are growing and strengthening, but also economies that may be leaving others behind? What of social and racial tensions, issues of equity? In many ways, these issues are at the heart of the challenges of the contemporary American city, he's capturing that through photos. The project will then have a series of writers writing in some ways in response to the photographs, but within their own fields, typically not designers, a curator, a social activist, an ecologist, and a few others who are really using Bellamy's photographs as a prompt to begin to think about the broader issues involved in cities today. The role of images and the imagination of cities is something that's really central to the initiative, the future of the American city. In that regard, it strikes me compelling, timely, to think about images as not simply instruments of persuasion. So often, you know, designers, urbanists are using images in a a less than uh, disinterested way. 
Uh, we have this long history in our field, as you know, of images being used to persuade, to sell, uh, not always um, adequately representing alternative futures. And so to return to these projects after a period of time and to use images to describe a, a kind of urban life strikes me as timely. How do you reconcile that with the role of design? Uh, so often in our history in the design fields, a return to the societal, a return to questions of um, environment has come or seen to be perceived to be in opposition to design. But your conception of work life seems to try to reconcile those two tensions, if I could put it that way. That's right. I think design has the ability to do so much more than just the physical artifact that results from the work. What is it that our work prompts? What is it that our work engages? As a landscape architect, inevitably you're engaging things beyond your control. The environment, rain, wind, climate, sun, people. You cannot control the way in which people day to day are going to walk through or inhabit the particular environment that you've created. And so in some ways, from the start, I've been very interested in this idea of the interplay between those things which we have very detailed control of, the design work, and those things that that design work engages or plays with or plays in, and, and those sets of relationships. To me, there's something, um, I don't want to say it's, it's, a, it's a neutral both-and situation, but it's one in which it's highly specific in many ways very intentional, but intentional with the acknowledgement that it will take on a life of its own and, and move beyond the control of the single designer. To me, that's energizing. So when you've returned to these projects through the lens of Bellamy's photographs, have you come across, have you witnessed, have you seen these projects in a new in a new way? Uh, have they been revelatory in that sense? Do they change the way that you understand even the work that your own practice have engaged in? They do. They capture people in a way that I've never before seen in, in this kind of work. Fully engaged or fully distracted, not always smiling, not always relaxing. I mean, so often designers are designing for the happy life or the good life. And you see the full range of human emotion in these, those moments sometimes of loneliness, those moments of frustration, those moments of tension, those moments of pure play and relaxation and freeing. I mean, it continues to inform an interest in, in human behavior that I've had from the start that ties back to both the way in which I would watch my kids when they were little hop down the street and create games out of utility covers because they didn't know what a utility cover was. It was just a shape on the ground that they were making up a game around. On the other hand, you can tie that from a disciplinary perspective to the work of William White um, and his detailed study of the public spaces of New York and the social life uh, that's prompted in them. Oscillating between these two things for me has been a good set of starting points, but it's in some ways informed the way that I'm thinking about the design work that we're doing. And now Mike is taking it a couple steps further to capture that in a, in a way that does offer new insight on human behavior 
but new insight into the ways in which people use public space. Oftentimes it's their living room. Sometimes it is the place of high emotion and the sheer range of, of emotion and expression and activity that you see there is, is something that's really quite powerful. And I don't take credit for them. It's, it's more the people themselves and the way in which he's capturing that. Your description of um, these images and the way that they document or describe um, the quotidian, the everyday life of cities, you know, it strikes me as a, a timely response to the kind of um, the ubiquity of uh, Photoshop montage images and the ways in which images of a future public realm are so often used to sell, as you say, the happy life, the good life. Everyone's thin and rich and uh, somehow everyone's uh, above average. Well, it's true. And, and we made a very deliberate choice at the beginning that the work would be all black and white. So it's not high gloss. It's not glamorized. It is the everyday. It is the real. And that's, that's the core of the interest. Are there ways um, that are already evident to you or maybe that you could speculate on in which these, uh, these images of your prior work might inform future design work that you engage in? Have you begun to think about how your practice might change on the design side in response to this um, kind of set of awarenesses or set of uh, literacies? He has ways of capturing the fleeting and the ephemeral, which in some ways have been, you know, lingering behind my interests, our interests as a practice, and the idea that we can circle back to some of those things and really begin to think about how to better tune design and the work to prompt, to amplify some of these ephemeral moments, whether it's fog or steam or wind or some other aspect of social life. I think there's, a, there's the beginning of a sort of self-reflection of things that maybe were of interest at one point that I think we want to revisit and find new ways of opening up again. I think the work is also very fresh. It's new. Two days ago, I got the Dropbox full of images from Los Angeles, and again, I'm seeing that place through a different lens, uh, through a different set of eyes, even though for part of the time I was walking with him through some of these environments and talking, and all of a sudden he's captured that in intriguingly different ways than, than I was seeing some of those same environments. Has this experience suggested to you in certain contexts simply designing less, if I could put it that way? Or maybe there are aspects of projects that deserve a different kind of attention? That's a good question. If designing less means allowing the built form to really support another set of activities, absolutely. Oftentimes that can be done with very minimal means. At the Plaza Science Center at Harvard, it's really just a simple surface, a few benches, some edge planting, and a whole lot of hidden utilities and foundations that actually support potential activities and events that are ongoing and constantly changing in that place. But when you move through it, when it's still and empty and there are just a few people lingering, it's a very, very simple space without a lot of bells and whistles and not much going on there. I think with very simple means, you can set this up. Occasionally, you have to be a little bit more muscular about that, but that doesn't mean garish and in your face. It's how is it that you can manipulate the basic elements of the public realm and landscape, earth, 
plant massing to really set up physical and spatial conditions that then prompt and support these kinds of social and environmental activities that you're imagining. Quite a lot of your work, especially in more complex, larger urban projects, has been before design, thinking about program, thinking about use and activity, engaging with communities, engaging with folks around, well, what should the future of this place be? And I'm interested to hear you say something about that experience, especially as it informs the programming and the desire for event and activity in relationship to these images after the fact, and if, if they can shed any light on how you might think about programming differently. Yeah, I think we approach a lot of our work starting with the question, what could happen here? What should we be doing? And by extension, what is the brief? Oftentimes, a client gives us a brief. says, we want a plaza, public space, campus quad, you know, here's the acreage, here's a program list, go to town, expecting that the designer will simply then make form. I think we like to dial that back a few steps and really interrogate that and say, well, okay, let's talk about that. Let's talk about what you really mean by some of these. And let's talk about maybe some of the things you haven't been thinking about. So the plaza at Harvard, for instance, the intent initially was to make it a destination event space that would attract certainly audiences from around the school and the, the university administration, students, faculty, to become a real center point of social life on campus but also to attract other audiences, residents, visitors to the school. And we said, that's great, but what about the everyday? What happens when those activities aren't taking place? It needs to be equally compelling, equally vibrant, if quiet, at those moments. And so how can we begin to kind of expand and, and, and rethink the way we're talking about the public space and how it can be multifunctional uh, and work in many different ways. And that to me is 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 really where the core of our work as a discipline should be, helping clients to imagine futures that they can't yet imagine themselves. They have a kernel of an idea, something to build on, but to engage us as designers to help really kind of think expansively about the wider range of issues that could be in play in a project, and then to craft the brief that becomes the new starting point for the work moving forward. I think, I think that's an energizing and really creative and productive starting point. I mean, your, your description of your research on work life and the return, in a way, to the societal and to the temporal dimensions of landscape, I think, parallels quite clearly, at least in my own mind, I wonder if you'd agree, with um, your interest in ecology. So on the one hand, for the better part of, um, uh, of the past uh, two decades, you and your practice have been associated with uh, the performative turn in landscape, a return to an interest in dynamic ecologies through design. I mean, you're, of course, um, founder of a firm itself named Stoss Landscape Urbanism, in which ecological process has been quite central to your practice. How should we think about your interest in returning to program and the life of projects over time in relationship to those ecological interests that you really founded your firm with? It's, it's one of those connections that I've discovered through the work itself. You're right. When we started, you know, I was interested in taking on this emerging field of landscape urbanism 
that you and James Corner, Mosa Mustafavi, and many others were involved in, in, in initiating or beginning the conversation around. And at that point, from the standpoint of practice, my agenda was twofold. One, how is it that we might start to put those ideas into play, into action, and what, what would come of that? And on the other hand, how could we collectively really push the discipline of landscape architecture to move beyond the single site, to move beyond an agenda of design, decoration that was really inscribed and narrowed over the course of the 20th century to the point where we were either garden designers, and, and this is not a slam against garden designers, that is an art uh, and a craft in and of itself, or we were simply dressing up building projects or, or covering over scars uh, from construction of 20th century infrastructure. This idea of landscape urbanism really pushed and said, no, landscape can do many more things. It can be tied to infrastructure. It can recover its role engaging larger scale environmental systems, waterways, uh, etc. It can take on really complex urban agendas. Uh, but oftentimes, the starting point on any particular number of sites was ecology. How do we re-inaugurate ecological life and ecological dynamics on sites that have been radically transformed uh, through industrialization or some other urbanization process? In those cases, the projects really were about setting up the physical conditions to allow those environmental dynamics to play themselves out, to have presence, but also to, to give them life and to allow those things to begin to develop on their own. Over the course of time, well, when you're starting a practice, you don't just get the biggest, meatiest project at the core of a dense downtown. You start with often smaller scale projects. And uh, we found ourselves in garden settings and small urban settings, really thinking about beyond any environmental agenda, how are people going to use these spaces? We started focusing a lot on furniture design and the design of the surface. Um, so uh, early project at Grand Matisse, Quebec, a garden festival that happens annually uh, we did a project called Safe Zone, which which used rubber, poured-in-place rubber, uh, typically used in playgrounds, constructed in undulating topography, very abstract, set within the woods, and simply let people in to see what they would do, to see how they would engage that space. It was a radically different kind of space. So many of the gardens in the Garden Festival were meant to be didactic. They had a particular message that they wanted you to understand and learn about, and they were beautiful. But this one is the one that allowed people in and allowed them to shed their inhibition and play and explore. Oftentimes, the construction supervisor would be there encouraging people to take their shoes and socks off so that they could feel the sponginess of the rubber on their feet. But what we found was that people would just begin to invent ways to use this very abstract space, whether kids were great at it, of course, they'd set up games and they'd tumble down and over the, the mounds. But, you know, adults were invited in too to, to, to really engage and play. Sometimes they needed a little push, but once you got them in the site, 
uh, they started to just explore and be themselves. And we benefited from having the construction manager continuously photo document the life of that space. That was really the starting point for a lot of the work-life uh, work. But a series of subsequent projects, we became involved in, in the design of seating and started to think about some of the same things. How do people want to sit and what do they want to do within an urban environment? Oftentimes in a space, we're all sitting in the same kind of chair Often uncomfortably, we're squirming, but more often than not, people are starting to adjust themselves to that environment. How is it that you begin to make a particular thing, a wall, a bench, your own, by the way in which you position your body? We begin to explore the idea of redesigning furniture that from the start would recognize people have different body types, body shapes, body sizes, uh, that sometimes they wanted to sit properly, sometimes they wanted to slouch, sometimes they wanted to sit cross-legged, sometimes they wanted somebody in their lap, uh, sometimes they wanted to be reclining. How is it that the design of a single bench could begin to accommodate this range of human behavior? And I think these things started to click, that, that there was this relationship between how we design to prompt environmental dynamics and how we design to prompt social dynamics and human behavior. So I know that you've been working uh, recently in Miami. I know that your research has taken you to do some work uh, in Overtown. Uh, and I want to ask you about that experience and what your perception has been of the contemporary conditions in Miami and Overtown specifically. I've always been fascinated with Miami as a 20th century city. So whether it's Los Angeles, Houston, Dallas, Miami, these are cities built um, their heyday was really uh, in the 20th century. They were built around infrastructure, typically uh, transportation infrastructure, typically at odds with whatever the natural environment was. Um, and I'm quite fascinated. There, There is a heroic quality to some of these constructions, but of course they have some serious social and environmental effects that are not so good. So being able to return to Miami, I taught a couple studios there a decade ago, was a great opportunity. The studio referred to was teaching with Sean Canty at Harvard's Graduate School of Design. Uh, Sean's a young architect, really talented guy. And together we crafted uh, an interdisciplinary studio to take on questions of what it means to conceive of public projects and redevelopment projects within the contemporary city. Overtown's an incredibly interesting neighborhood, immediately adjacent to downtown Miami, subject to immense development pressures. Uh, Miami is a booming city right now with a lot of development underway. But Overtown's history is one of African-American culture and Afro-Caribbean culture. It was initially designated colored town. It was the only place in Miami that people with brown and black skin uh, were allowed to live. But as that community developed and probably developed with substandard housing and all that, it actually had an incredible uh, social and vibrant cultural life. Uh, one of the stories that we heard is that a lot of times black musicians uh, would play gigs at the hotels on the beaches, but they weren't allowed to stay there. And there was a particular hotel in Overtown that they would come back to. 
and then the after party would begin. There are incredible photographs of street scenes, vibrant, incredibly vibrant neighborhood. But over time, additional uh, racist zoning policies, interstate highway construction that deliberately obliterated the neighborhood has really ravaged that part of town so that you, right now you have uh, significantly high vacancy rates, high unemployment, um, some crime issues, a largely homogenous, poor African-American community. But one of Miami's multiple distinct communities scattered around the city, each of which has its own identity. And even in this slightly tattered state, Overtown still has a cultural vibrancy to it with some amazing food in particular. The studio, though, took on the issue of what does it mean to think about the future of places like this? Is high-rise, high-end condo development the only way forward when we begin to think of housing people? Are there other ways to rethink the public realm? Can we reimagine the city to be more inclusive, to be more equitable, and to begin to develop those ideas around simple proposals for affordability and housing, of transit and infrastructure, of adaptation to climate change, of creating a robust and vibrant public realm, of investing in different ways in a place like that, that are better tuned to the people that are there and that are better tuned to a wider spectrum of potential city dwellers. Sean and I spent a couple months with an interdisciplinary body of students, architects, landscape architects, urban designers, to really explore some of these issues to the core. We benefited from Lily Song's parallel planning seminar to begin to unearth uh, hidden stories and hidden cultures of the place, and then to begin to speculate on, on alternative futures for what that community could be, alternative to what is typical of development in Miami and many other places, but addresses many of the audiences and issues that are really in play. In our conversations about Miami, Miami has been characterized as much as any other city, uh, any other American city that I'm aware of, as really a city in which community identity has been inscribed historically through architectural identity. You know, Miami is, of course, home to uh, Little Havana and Little Haiti. And the, the little littles, you know, all the communities in which not only a kind of coherent cultural formation, uh, but equally a form of architectural identity is legible. And in that context, it's interesting that you refer to Overtown's history. Of course, Overtown, like Bronzeville in Chicago or, or Harlem in New York, has had this extraordinary cultural life. Uh, and at the same moment, uh, Overtown seems to be quite central to many people's plans and it's interesting to hear your reflections on how Overtown might be thought about as representing its own identity going forward. Can you tell us more about the studio you're engaged in and the role of architectural identity in the making of an urban neighborhood? Yeah, the starting point, this issue of cultural identity is something that we encounter in many different ways in almost every city that we're talking, um, working in. How is it that we honor the cultural identity and memory of, of a place? How is it that we unearth maybe buried identities, identities and stories that have often been deliberately buried? 
because of social or racial issues? How is it that those come into play in the work we do? These are deep and difficult questions that we confront on a daily basis in practice, and they're incredibly rich. In Miami, the question was, what are the cultural traditions, food being one of them, we could use as a starting point for thinking about the way in which we develop urban strategies? What are the various programmatic proposals we could make for public space that would better serve communities that that are there, but also broaden the audience, invite other people in that might further diversify the place in a good way? And what are the other, you know, in some cases, basic needs that we could address through some of the projects. The issue of expression, architectural expression or identity is one that's um, difficult and I've been thinking a lot about relative to our work in St. Louis and a number of places. And we've been having some interesting conversation about that. On the one hand, we're working with a woman, Dee Nichols, young African-American activist, artist in St. Louis. And she tells me, reminds me, look, Everybody's the same. There's a set of social common denominators that are common to all of us, food and water, the need for a safe place to live, safe walk to school, social interaction. That, that's the foundation of, of life, no matter who you're talking to. On the other hand, we work with a number of artists and others who are very interested in very specific expressions of particular cultures, identities, and traditions to the end of making art with signs and symbols that are recognizable to people from cultural traditions whose traditions have typically not been represented. So you can imagine any city has its collection of busts of white men in the public realm. What are the other cultural traditions that could be represented that would make a little kid from any one of those uh, communities or cultures feel like she too was part of this bigger uh, civic community. I don't have an answer to this question. And in a 13-week studio is something that was really tough for the students to engage and to engage in a deep and meaningful way as opposed to simply proposing a mural on the side of a building. A lot of students, um, because they knew they couldn't go that deep, decided not to fully engage uh, some of those issues and, and, and took the tack of, of program in other ways that, that they could begin to address some of the issues. But I think the issue that you raise is something that we think about on a daily basis and how do we design for that? How do we design in ways that signal to all people that they're welcome here? You've been working in a host of American cities. You mentioned the legacy cities you've been working in, places like Detroit or um, St. Louis. You've also, of course, been active in Los Angeles and Houston. Looking more broadly at the future for the American city and thinking about your, your work, what can we say are the central challenges going forward in your, in your mind? And, and where do you see uh, reason for the greatest optimism? Environment and climate change is first and foremost among these 
I think in many ways it affects a much wider spectrum of urban dwellers, even than we're already talking about. Climate change, climate adaptation discussions uh, within design are often focused on coastal environments, sometimes on inland rivers that flood. I'm as interested in arid landscapes. I'm interested in the urban heat island condition, the fact that the inner city gets very, very hot and disproportionately warmer than other places. Oftentimes within those environments, you have poorer, uh, more disadvantaged populations who cannot react to those circumstances in the ways that wealthier communities can. How is it that we rework, adapt the inner city to better address some of these issues? What we're finding more and more, and that's a good case of it, is how climate adaptation initiatives are now being directly tied to equity issues. How is it that we're thinking about all of our populations in different ways? How is it that we think about that in terms of housing and basic services? But how is it that we think about that in terms of quality of the urban environment? This intersection of the social, the equitable, the environmental, I think is is one that's just bubbling to the surface now and could potentially really reshape the way in which we think about cities as we go forward. Thanks a lot, Chris, for joining us. Happy to be here. You've been listening to Future of the American City, curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. Our producers are Aziz Barber, Charlie Gilliard, and Mercedes Peralta. Music is by Kevin Graham, and Jeffrey Villade is our recording engineer. To learn more, visit votac.gsd.harvard.edu.